So to be honest, I have at home the Book of Mormon. And I was really close to bringing it in for an illustration, but I was so superstitious that I was like, there's no way I can do it because even when I'm at home, it's laying by my bed and I'm afraid that it's just gonna lift up and start levitating in the middle of the night. So I didn't bring it in, but I'm still gonna use the same illustration to make my point. What if I were to use the Book of Mormon to teach tonight? Would anyone object to that? Why? Why can't I preach from the Book of Mormon? Someone tell me. Yes. What? I have no idea what you said. You have to talk louder. Oh, because I'm Christian. That's why we can't use the Book of Mormon. Well, think about it this way. If I was a little bit smarter, and if I was a little bit more energetic and entertaining, I bet you I could bring the Book of Mormon in, find a passage from the Book of Nephi or something. That's a real book. I'm not even joking. And I could preach from it, pull out a whole bunch of values and tips on how to live a good life, how to be more loving, how to be like Joseph Smith, and how to find your inner golden tablets. I could probably come up with that. But I'm not. Why? Because I could come up with all this superficial things, but at the core of it, at the heart of it, we come to the Bible as the word of God because we know that the true, one true God is behind it, right? So we know that the Holy Spirit is the one that teaches us when we come to these meetings. It's not me speaking. It's not about what I think or what I think that anyone has to say or, or their philosophies or their thoughts, but it's God's thoughts. And we believe that God himself speaks. But if we value the Bible just like any other holy book, then we're not going to be convicted. We're not going to be spoken to and we're not going to have any authority onto how to live our lives. And we're living in a time when all people have equal say. It's a very interesting time in case you haven't noticed. You could be on YouTube and you're looking up some, what a, a philosopher or a doctor thinks about, you know, the historicity of the Bible. And they have a PhD and they're talking very wise, but then someone YouTube responds to them in a video and they're just like some 13 year old kid. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, did you hear that 13 year old kid's response? And we hold everyone in equal value or we'll dislike what they say and say, oh yeah, we hate him. And they'll just shout out YouTube comment, comments or whatever. And it affects the way that we think. We get our news from Facebook. We get our news from Twitter. And if you don't believe that, just, I mean, for myself, I know this is true because how many times have you thought, you really thought that Justin Bieber died because it was trending on Twitter? At least five times I thought it says rip Justin Bieber hashtag. And I'm like, oh my gosh, Justin Bieber died. And everyone's just joking because it was trending on Twitter. Well, how do you know what is right? How do you know what is wrong? Today, people are denying the very concept of truth. They say, what's true for you isn't necessarily true for me. So God might work for you, you Christians. God might work for you, but don't you dare shove the Bible down my throat. It's okay that you want to be happy and you want to use Jesus and you fell in love with Jesus and you have a spiritual experience, but let me have my own spiritual experience. You know, the Hindus have spiritual experiences. The Mormon church, they all go to the, uh, the church of Mormon or whatever it is. I can't think off the top of my head, but they go to those churches so that they could have religious experiences and they could feel emotions. So people might deny truth. People may say there is no truth, but they prove it by the way that they live their lives. 
And I'm sure that you've heard people say, yeah, that's true for you or that's good for you, but it's not true for me. And they might live like there's no truth and they might like to believe there is no truth, but they can't sincerely act like there is no truth. Think about it. If there was no truth, there could be no science. That means people would be have have to be afraid that today they wake up, everything's normal. Tomorrow they might have a fear that the world's going to explode into unicorns. Because there's no science. There's nothing holding them to that standard. You couldn't practice medicine. You know, I can imagine a poor little boy who's sick. Walks up to the doctor and is like, doctor, will this medicine make me well? No, it won't. There is no truth. Oh, well, why am I taking the medicine? You can't act like there is no truth. In fact, the idea that there is no truth seems to only pop up in terms of art and religion. I like this piece of art. I like this music. I like this band. I like Christianity. You like Hinduism. And it's all relative to whoever's experiencing it. Some people love their neighbors and other people eat their neighbors. It all depends on what you think. (laughs) So people are acting and they like to say, they like to believe there is no truth, but they can't sincerely live like there's no truth. But the saddest part is that fewer Christians are prepared to stand for the one true God. Fewer Christians know how to respond to people that act like there is no truth or that you should be quieted or you should be dumbed down. And in fact, I think we are dumbed down. I think in our society today, we aren't taught how to be good thinkers. We are taught how to be distracted. When you go home, you don't, the first thing you do probably isn't reading your Bible. It probably isn't studying. The first thing you do is, oh, I just want to relax. You'll watch anything that's on TV, even if it dumbs down your brain, even if it's a reality show you hate. I found that the, real, the only TV I've ever watched was shows that I couldn't stand. And so you might go home and you might go watch the Jersey Shore, even though you're like, I hate those people, but I'm so interested in what they're doing. <laughs> that's the way it is. It's because we have cosmological ADD. You know, We can't see God on a day-to-day basis, so we're just like, well, why am I going to worship? I'm going to worship the dirt. Okay, and so we have dirt worshipers. We have tree huggers. We have people that worship anything that's around us because we can't stand not to have meaning in our lives. So everything is designed to keep us from boredom. We don't want to be alone with our thoughts. God forbid that we actually think about what we're doing and where we're going in life. So people like to be distracted as much as possible. I just talked to one of my friends who came back from a a trip in the Philippines, and he was preaching over there, and he was telling me how people there literally have nothing. At 3 a.m. in the morning, he was driving around, and there are people with no clothes staring out into space. And we were just talking about what could could have they possibly been thinking about. I bet you it's not about TV. I bet you it's not about Jersey Shore. They were thinking about the most important things of life. Why are we here? What is the meaning of life? What is the purpose? Is there a God? Should I love other people? Should I not love other people? They're thinking about the important questions. And I think here in American culture, because all we take in is TV, all we take in is Twitter and Facebook and all these things, we have adopted the main philosophy of our country, which is humanism. Basically meaning, in layman's terms, humanism is the belief that the chief end of man is happiness for everyone. So we adopt that into our Christian thinking saying, oh, well, we're going to approach the Bible and we're going to approach church looking for whatever makes us happy while on the earth. Not in heaven. We don't look to happiness in heaven. We look for whatever makes us more comfortable, distracted here on earth. 
And if it doesn't suit our criteria, have you noticed that everyone here in America has a criteria on what they should have? It's because we have so many choices. They're like, oh, the girl wasn't hot enough. Uh, the youth group wasn't cool enough. Therefore, it's just not going to meet my standards. I'm not going to deal with any of those things. We abandon them for what makes us happy, saying, I have better choices than that. I deserve better. You know, I'm not going to read this version of the Bible because it's too confusing, so I'm going to read a different version. I'm going to read this book because it's too hard, so I'm going to watch a TV show about the same book. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 through 4 says, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. I think that's convicting. At least it is for me. I don't know about you. I feel like our culture has become this, entertain me, and if you don't, I'm leaving. Make me happy, otherwise I'm not going to listen. God, fulfill my needs, fulfill my criteria. I, I have this list that I want you to fill, and if you don't, I'm not going to believe in you. I think that's what has infected our culture. And this is the background, the same situation that the Israelites were going through in 1 Kings chapter 18. Let's look at it together. So Ahab, which was the king of Israel at the time, an evil king, sent for all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together on Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. But the people answered him, Not a word. You see, it wasn't just that the people wholly rejected God. It wasn't that they said, okay, we're going to reject God and go over to Baal. They didn't say a word. They remained silent. You see, because the God of Baal, this guy Baal, they trusted in him for rain, for prosperity, for fertility, for their land. So they said, well, we possibly can't do without him because he gives us everything we need, even though they were going through a drought. But they still cared about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he's the one that brought them out of Egypt. So they didn't know what to do. And they were limping back and forth between two opinions. And they wanted both God and Baal. Does it sound like you? We want Jesus and something else. Jesus and One Direction. If only. Jesus and dating a hot unbeliever. I've noticed so many people that have put their criteria in a certain uh, form of a list that they bring to God, they present it to God saying, well, this boy meets the, the list that I have, so obviously God's got to meet those standards too. And they'll say, well, we read our Bibles together. He comes to church. She comes to church. So obviously God must say that's okay. And I think in America, we're just spoiled with so many choices. We say, wait a minute. You're saying I, I, I just get Jesus? That's it? I don't get married too. I don't get a car too. I don't get wealth. I don't get fame. I only have Jesus. What else do I get with the Jesus combo? We have so many choices. I think it's funny because I think the hardest decisions for me on a day-to-day -day basis are what am I going to eat? Other countries don't have this problem. And maybe other people don't. It's just me, I guess. But literally every day I'll just be like, what oh, should I eat? Should I eat pizza again? I had that yesterday. Should I eat french fries? I don't want to eat french fries. And we're just so flooded with choices that we don't know what to do. But this wasn't just a matter of preference between God and Baal. This wasn't a matter of opinion. They were limping back and forth, not real, 
realizing or recognizing what was at stake. You know, the God called Baal wasn't really a God. The God of Israel, he was the one true God and they did not take a stand to worship the only one worthy of worship. When it says faltering between two opinions, the literal word there is talking about an actual dance. They use the same word to describe as you're gonna look in a little bit, the prophets of Baal when they were dancing around the altar, cutting themselves. They were swaying, they didn't know what to do. So literally they didn't, they're like, oh, I wanna go this way, but oh, I wanna go that way. Oh, I don't know what to do. It kind of reminded me of this little kid that I knew when I was like, I don't know, 12 and he was five. And whenever he had to go to the bathroom, you knew because he would hold his tushy and go like this. <sighs> It'd be like, do you have to go to the bathroom? It'd be like, no, no, I'm fine. He's just like hopping back and forth. This is kind of what I picture. I know that was a graphic picture, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is kind of what, how I envision the people of Israel. They didn't know what to do. They were at standstill, they were silent. Now, there's something to be said about what if God doesn't exist? If God doesn't exist, then there is no right or wrong. Everyone's opinion has equal weight. So the wishes of the majority of the people are as equal to the wishes of the minority of the people. So if the 10% of the people want ice cream, then the 10% of people should get ice cream and also the 90%. Everyone should get uh, an equal chance to say whatever it is that they want to say. So American culture kind of shouts out equal rights for everyone and at all cost. Because we value the person that's uh, the one percentile and the 99%. So everyone should get health care. Everyone should get jobs. Everyone should be married. And in fact, culture kind of teaches us that it's cool to rebel. And if you haven't noticed already, that's what hipsters are. Rebels, right? Anarchists, they're cool. Occupy Wall Street, that's cool. You're rebelling against the 99%. Indie music, oh, it's so different. It's in its own category, it's so cool. But as soon as it becomes the majority, it's not cool anymore. As soon as it's in Macy's, that's how you know it's not cool anymore. <laughs> I can say that because I shop at Macy's. But some might say, where did the shift come from in our culture? Some argue that it's due to World War II. And this is what I find really interesting. This one woman famously concluded in her book, Eichmann in Jerusalem, I don't know her name, that some of the worst villains in the Nazi regime were not necessarily evil as much as they were terrifyingly normal. Now this is talking about the Holocaust. The scariest thing about the Holocaust wasn't that there was a bunch of evil people that wanted to carry out their schemes and they killed a bunch of Jews. The scary thing about the Holocaust was it was the terrifyingly normal people that simply followed directions and did what they thought was right by the authorities and the nation which called them to their service. These people were just obeying the laws of the land and they said, well, I guess it's okay to persecute the Jews because the government says so. So Brent McCracken, author of a book called Hipster Christianity says, after World War II, it's a good book, the logic of hip centered around the countercultural counter maxim that power of any and all kinds could never be trusted again, that the majority must always be challenged, the authority ceaselessly undermined, and the machine continually raged against. Cool became primarily about rebellion and protest. Listen to this. Even if it was unclear what was being protested and why. Can you think of an example in modern day of this phenomena, 
Anyone? I can think of one. Yes. Coney 2012. <laughs> what amazed me about that whole video scheme is that people's opinions changed overnight. At first, it was like no one knew anything about Uganda or Kenya. No one knew anything about Joseph Coney. But overnight, people were just passionate about, yes, we have to do everything we can. I'm going to get the flyers, I'm going to get a t-shirt, going to get the bracelet. I'm going to do everything I can to promote or make Coney famous or whatever it was. So the thing that was scary about me is how many people didn't question the source, not saying that it's all evil, it's all bad. I'm saying how many people's opinions were changed overnight just because it was appealing to their emotions. Just because it was cool and it was a really good video and there was a cute little kid that talked about the evils of Coney. How many people were devoted to this opinion that could have been false? Although it probably wasn't false, they held to this with conviction. So, in this age of rebellion and anarchy, people would say to us Christians, who are you to say that we should listen to the God of the Bible? The Lord is with us. <laughs> you know, it seems like we're living in a world that is angry at Christians, that screams, I refuse to believe in a powerful, authoritative God that allows such evils in the world. And you shouldn't be allowed to either. See, that's the difference. And that's the key. Pay attention because this is really important. We're no longer in a time where Christians are just being thought of as stupid and, and ignorant. Before, like in the modern era, it used to be that science was the most important thing and whatever, Christians were, they're this weird sect where they didn't believe in science. And obviously Christians are stupid. They're not educated on the latest about cosmology or, or the universe or things like that. Now, it's not just that you're stupid, but you're actually immoral for believing what you believe. To be a Christian in our day and age, you are evil. Because you are believing in a God the world believes is evil and is the author of evil. So they would say things like, look at all the harm done in the name of religion. Haven't you ever heard of the Crusades? I, heard, I just read a book by one of the, the new atheists that says that the Holocaust is done by Christians. And Christians are behind the Holocaust. And all religious thought leads to tyranny, intolerance, and death. And people would also say... Don't, you have such an outdated belief about marriage. How can you believe in the Bible? It's so old. Now we are in a new culture that knows that marriage isn't just between a man and a woman, but it's between people that love each other. So they would say, and if you don't believe in that, then you are immoral. And you should be put in some weird sect of Christianity because you don't even believe in orthodox, historical Christianity. People are changing the past to fit whatever it is that they want to hear and that they want to adopt. And the Christians are thinking, well, I don't want to offend my friends with my beliefs. I don't want to offend anyone. If I talk about this, then people will be angry at me. They'll think that I'm some like one of those crazy people with the Westboro Baptist Church holding those picketing signs. I don't want to be associated with those terroristic people. So I'm just going to keep my beliefs to myself. Al Mohler, a doctor and theologian, says, 
The greater danger for us is that we listen not to a magisterium above, but to the inner child or whatever seems to be the voice within. That's the key for our generation. We no longer look to the Bible. We no longer look to what God says. We look to the inner voice within. How do I feel about the message? How do I feel about this passage of scripture or Buddhist scripture or Hindu scripture? How does it make me feel inside? And that's what's going to make me decide what I want. But I don't want to just make a, an exclusive choice. I want Hinduism, a little bit of Buddhism, and a little bit of Christianity. I want to make sure that I'm safe in all spots so I can, you know, one of them's got to be right so that when I die, I'll go to whatever heaven it is that they believe in. No one knows what to believe and no one wants to make any decisions. But as we live in the world, it is impossible to just be neutral. God says you are either for me or you are against me. So if you're taking notes, there are two reasons why people don't take a stand for God. There are two reasons why I believe that people don't take a stand for God. Number one, they don't know the power of God. They don't know the power of God. And number two, they do not recognize that God deserves our worship. Not just wants our worship, but they do not recognize that God deserves our worship. So number one, people do not know the power of God. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Truth is exclusive, ladies and gentlemen. It's the same thing as an exclusive relationship. If you're dating someone and you're in an exclusive relationship, that doesn't mean you can date whoever you want. That means that you are to be with one person and any other person that is against your relationship, you are also against them. If the Bible is the word of God and claims to be the truth, that means it excludes all things that contradict it. People do not take a stand for God because they do not know the power of God. They do not know that God demands exclusivity because he is the only one deserving of worship. He is the only one with power. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is true, or truth rather. It doesn't say your word is true, but your word is truth itself. And that's the key because all religions have some truth to them. That's why they're so appealing. They have a little bit of truth that makes you think, oh yeah, that's how I feel. Oh, I've thought about that before. I felt that before. All religions have a little bit of truth to them. I mean, even the church of SpongeBob has truth to it. Do you guys know that there's a church of SpongeBob? Now you know. I'm dead serious. Google it. There's a church of SpongeBob, and they proclaim the truth that SpongeBob is a really good cartoon show, and it's true. But that doesn't mean that you should live your entire life by the church of SpongeBob. So we teach the Bible not because we like to believe it's true, not because it has a little bit of truth, but because it is the inspired word of God. It is truth itself. A.W. Tozer once said, Every man must choose his world. And do you find, do you find yourself, you, I don't know how old you are, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, 12th grade, do you find yourself to be someone that is silent in this angry world? Do you find yourself on the sidelines saying, I'm just not gonna take a stand, I'm not gonna stand up for Jesus, he can defend himself, he can do his thing. Well, let's look at verse 22. Then Jesus said to the people, 
I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. That's a lot of people. Therefore, let them give us two bowls and let them choose one bowl for themselves, cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. I'm sorry if this is a little graphic. But put no fire under it and I will prepare the other bowl and lay it on the wood, but put no fire under it. Then you will call on the name of your gods and I will call on the name of the Lord and the God who answers by fire, he is God. So all the people answered and said, it is well spoken. Now Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one bowl for yourselves and prepare it first for you are many and call on the name of your God, but put no fire underneath it. So the odds seemed against Elijah. Let's be honest. Elijah was one prophet of God against 450 prophets of Baal. It didn't look too good for him. And in fact, that's kind of why people didn't follow God in the first place, because the evil queen Jezebel was executing people that claimed to be prophets of God, that claimed to follow the one true God. So people were, you know, didn't want the persecution from Jezebel, and also at the same time, they still kind of loved the things in the world, so they didn't know what to do. Also, it should be noted that Baal was thought to control fire and lightning. He was the God that threw, threw out the thunderbolts. He was the Zeus of the day. And the odds will always seem against us when we look at the battle from a human point of view. It'll always seem like you're on the defensive. It'll always seem like you're persecuted because the world hates you. It will always seem like Baal is powerful, but in reality, he is not. So in application, you know, I think it's funny because if you just picture this battle on Mount Carmel, here's Elijah, they're on the top of the mountain, there's two different altars, they're preparing the altars, and they're saying, okay, you set up your prophets, I'm going to set up myself, I guess, and the God that answers by fire and burns up these altars is the one true God. And they're like, well, obviously we're going to win, our God is the God of thunder and lightning. Obviously we're going to do well. And I think there's a prevailing thought that Christians should go with their strong points and the rest will just concede to atheists. The rest will just give over to the people that don't believe in God. So we'll just keep our beliefs and we'll keep our morality in church. We'll feel like we can't win a debate against the atheists on science. They obviously know a lot more than us. So obviously we're not going to win a battle of intellect. So we go with happiness and feelings. And we say to our unchristian friends, well, you're probably not really happy, are you? And say, no, I'm, I'm okay. Like, no, you're not. You haven't experienced Jesus, so you're not really happy. I'm like, no, I'm, I'm actually not a depressed person. Aren't you, don't you ever get alone with your thoughts at night and you just wonder? You just wonder what it all means. And you realize that your life is purposeless and devoid of any meaning. And they're like, no, I, I'm actually pretty happy. And so the people of Israel thought, well, Baal is really good at controlling fire. Let's find out his weakness. And maybe they would have thought, we'll use the water gun attack and find out it's super effective. <laughs> Pokemon reference, sorry. But the Bible says something very different about sticking to our strong points. And in fact, Christians have all the strong points because there's only one true God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, it says, we destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture the rebellious thoughts and teach them to obey Christ. Look at verse 26. So they took the bowl which was given them and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning even till noon saying, O Baal, hear us. But there was no voice. No one answered. Then they leapt about the altar which they had made. 
And so it was at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is meditating, or he is busy, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they cried aloud and cut themselves as, as was their custom with knives and lances until blood gushed out on them. And when midday was passed, they prophesied until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. There's a reason why nothing happened. Uh, duh, Baal isn't God. He doesn't have any powers. It's not a matter of preference. And you might talk to your friends and they say, I like Buddha, you like Jesus. So that's it. God works for you, but it doesn't necessarily work for me. Or they might say, we have matured past the Bible. Isn't the Bible like, what, 2,000 years old? Obviously, in 2,000 years, our culture has adapted past and beyond the Bible. It's kind of like saying that we've gone past the sun because we have light bulbs. And like, well, you still rely on the sun? You're so ridiculous. We have light bulbs. I mean, look how bright it is. We can worship the light bulbs. It's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of truth. And what we believe about God has ultimate consequences on how we live our lives. Even the atheists recognize this. In fact, Jean-Paul Sartre, a famous philosopher, atheist, said about death, talking about how you're living your life and talking about death, he says, several hours or several years make no difference once you have lost eternity. Even Jean-Paul Sartre recognized there is meaninglessness apart from God. Your life is, you have to race out your life. You don't know what you're going to do because there is no God. There is no purpose. There is no meaning. So we have to contrive a meaning. Instead of looking to the creator who created us for a purpose for our lives, we have to kind of conjure up meaning in our lives just to make ourselves happy for the short period of time that we're on earth. Elijah was not afraid of presenting the truth because there was no real ball to fear. Although, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't necessarily recommend the method he used. Did you look at what he said to the prophets of Baal? They're cutting themselves. They're bleeding everywhere with knives and lances. And he's like, well, maybe Baal's on a journey, or maybe he's busy. Maybe he's on vacation. You should cry louder. I think it's kind of like, I mean, picture this today's society using this exact tactic. If we just took things out of context, and we just adapted them to today's day and age, and we were just like, we saw our Buddhist friend. Their dog just died. And they're crying. They've been, you know, we've been talking about Buddhism and Christianity here and there. And then finally their, their dog dies and they're crying. They're pouring out their hearts. They're like, why, Buddha? Why? And they're like, oh, Johnny, you know what? Maybe you should cry louder. Maybe he's, maybe Buddha's on the bathroom. Maybe, maybe he's busy. You never know. I mean, that's what the literal text says. So Elijah's kind of mocking them, and I don't think I'd recommend that. But one thing he did recognize is that there was no Baal. The reason why he was not responding is because he didn't really exist. So the first reason that people don't take a stand for God is because people do not know the power of God. The second reason is because people do not recognize that God is deserving of worship. People do not recognize that God is deserving of worship. So look at verse 30 with me. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him after everything's done. People are crying. People are bleeding. It's really gross out. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, 
Israel shall be your name. Then with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood, and said, Fill four water pots with water, and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Which is kind of strange. If you're trying to make a fire, you don't dump water on it. And he says, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And people are like, Elijah, what are you doing? You're making it harder for God to work. You're making it harder for God to do a miracle. Which is kind of strange, I guess, of a question in itself. So the water ran all around the altar, and he also filled the trench with water. So now it's absolutely impossible. It is already impossible that fire could just spontaneously come out of nowhere, but now it's even more impossible because there's water there. And it came to pass at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice that Elijah the prophet came near and said, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and I am your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. Hear me, O Lord. Hear me that this people may know that you are the Lord God and that you have turned their hearts back to you again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So we might be quick to think that Elijah was bold just because he knew that souls were at stake. And usually our purpose and our motivation behind evangelism is to seek and save the lost. And nothing's wrong with that. But there is another motivation behind why Elijah was standing up for the Lord. It's because he knew the glory of God was at stake. He knew that God was deserving of our worship. The Bible is not centered around people. It's not centered around entertainment. It's centered around God. And Elijah was bold because he knew that God deserves our worship. So many times we can feel like our purpose in evangelism is is to go and seek and save the people that are lost, people that are far away from God, and do it for their sake, which is true. But also our purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever to live for his name, and evangelism exists because there are not enough people that are glorifying God. So the logical outworking of evangelism is, okay, people are not worshiping the one who's deserving of worship, so we got to go find them and show them that God is worthy. Turn to John chapter 18, and this is where we're going to close tonight. Something very important, so I want you guys to zone in on this. If you've been zoning out all day, that's okay, because we're going to John 18. John chapter 18, starting in verse 28. Let's see if you make the parallel in your own mind. Really try to concentrate on this, and then we're going to talk about it. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium, and it was early morning. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? This man, of course, being Jesus. They answered them, they said to them, if you were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. Obviously, he must have done something wrong because we're accusing him of doing something wrong. Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. 
that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. Then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, Are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? In other words, make your own decision. Don't let society, society define how you're going to think. Make your own personal decision. It's not about your parents' decision for you to follow God. Not about your friend's decision for you to follow God. But you, every single person here has to come to terms as to who is God. Either he is God or Baal is God. There can't be both. Pilate answered in verse 35, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my people were of this world, my servants would fight so that I, I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. Pilate therefore said to him, are you a king then? Obviously, he's really confused. Jesus answered, you say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. But it doesn't start, stop there. Look at verse 39. But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Do you therefore want me to release, you, to, release to you the king of the Jews? And then they all cried again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Pilate chose to let the culture make the decisions for him. Even though at first he had the conviction, maybe, maybe there is something to this. Maybe he is innocent. He said, well, I don't want to even think about it. I'm going to let other people decide for me what I think about Jesus. He didn't think for himself. So let me ask you something. Everyone look up here. Would you find Jesus guilty or innocent? Or would you just say, well, I guess... If Jesus is offending people, he's making people unhappy, I guess we should stop him. Maybe we should tell Jesus to tone it down. Go up to him and be like, oh, Jesus, I know you've been healing people. I know that you've been preaching the word of God, but maybe you could just say it a little bit softer instead of saying repent all the time. Maybe you could be a little bit nicer about it. Would you find him guilty or innocent? The very fact that Pilate chose not to take action was itself an action. Everyone has a choice. You don't have a choice about that. We have to all choose God or not choose God. And the very fact that you say, I want to stay on the sidelines means you are rejecting God. That's what Pilate did. He chose not to take action and it itself was the action of rejecting God. Let me put it this way, an analogy you might understand. If you had a friend that saved your family from being murdered, you had a friend, you were away from your house and a friend was at your house for whatever reason, he saw your family being murdered and he saved your family. They were no longer, you know, they weren't going to die because of this. Even though they got beat up, even though they got stabbed, they're going to be okay. And then after that, you go to the trial and your friend is falsely accused of murdering your family. And even your family is against you and against him. Say, no, it was your friend. And you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that it was uh, the, the stranger, the murderer, and it wasn't your friend. Would you just say... Well, I guess if my family's offended that uh, 
I'm going to take his side. I'm not going to take his side. I'm going to let my friend die. No, you would do everything it takes to stand up for your friend. No, he stood up for you. Can't you see? He's the one who saved you. But we do the same thing to God, saying, yeah, well, for me, he's innocent, but I don't want to offend my family. I don't want to offend my friends with my views. And our ideas, ladies and gentlemen, have consequences. And what we believe about God will dictate how we live our lives. You know what I can't stand? I can't stand when you're arguing with someone and there's three people there, you, person you're arguing with, and mediator. The person in between looking at it, staying completely silent, and you're yelling and then you look at your friend and you're like, come on, take my side. And he's like, I'm staying out of it. And both of you hate that friend because he doesn't want to take a stand. I hate people like that. Because you know he's on your side too. You're like, I know, I know you're going to help me. And he's just like, I, I don't want to offend anyone. I'm going to stay out of it. It makes me really mad. And every man must choose his world. We all have a choice. And in that case, you know, one of us was definitely wrong. Or maybe we we're just arguing for no reason. But God is the only one worthy of worship. Baal is not worthy of worship. It does nothing to stand on the sidelines and say, I'm not going to make a choice. I'm going to stay silent. I'm nervous because people are making fun of me at school. I'm nervous because my friends might not like me after I talk about Jesus. And realizing that we are rejecting the very one who gave us our very lives. Every man must choose his world, but do you find yourself to be silent? The world is robbing God of his glory and giving the glory he deserves to created things. And we say, well, I guess it's okay to do that. I guess it's okay to rob God of his things and give it to creation. It's not. It's the ultimate injustice. In conclusion, I just wanted to point out something. I think that obviously Jesus knew he was going to be rejected, right? Obviously he knew the crowd was going to ask for Barabbas. But I wonder if Jesus was standing up there looking at the crowd for one hand to go up, say, no, I want Jesus. For two hands, maybe half of them, maybe just under half, saying, no, we want Jesus. But the crowd rejected him. I can imagine Jesus wondering, whom shall I send? Who will go for me? Who will stand in the gap? And in the case of 1 Kings chapter 18, the Israelites were silent. They did not make a choice. No one made a choice. It was only Elijah. But the good thing is that our God is an all-consuming fire. And if you quickly, even if you have it open, if you don't, that's fine. Just look at 1 Kings chapter 18 again. And you look at verse 38, you'll notice that it says, when the fire of the Lord descended upon the altar, everything was licked up. Not just the water, not just the sacrifice, but the stones and the dust were licked up in this fire. And you might have friends that are hardened towards the Lord. You might have friends that say, I'm going to reject God. I don't believe in this. You know, I believe in science. I believe in philosophy. And they reject God overwhelmingly. And they have the hardest hearts that you can never get through to them. But one day, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. And my prayer for every one of you students here tonight is that you would catch that vision. You would catch that fire here at Impact, not while you're at the world, and God forbid, when Jesus comes back and when you've rejected him all of your life. But you would realize that our God is an all-consuming fire here at Youth Group so that you would catch that fire and you would spread it out 
to the world because the world is corrupt. The culture we live in is all about entertainment. It's corrupting. But you say, no, even if no one else stands, I'm going to stand for God. Even if no one else wants to talk to the new kid at youth group, I'm going to do it. Even if it's hard, even if it's difficult, I recognize that it was difficult for Jesus to walk to the cross on my behalf. So I'm going to live for him. The more time we spend with Jesus, you might say, well, I don't necessarily feel like that right now. I don't, I'm not that in love with Jesus right now. That's okay because the more time you spend with Jesus, the more we will see his power, his holiness, and why he is worth living for. God himself will show you how empty your idols are, how boring it is to just go home at night and just watch TVs and distract yourself from the real questions of life. Where am I doing? Where am I going? Why do I even go to college? Why do I get a job? Why do I do anything? You'll say, I know Jesus and I know what he has called me to do and I know why my life is worth living for him. It's because he is good. He's the author of goodness. He's the author of creation. Andrew Murray once said something very convicting for me. He says, pay attention. I have not a thought. I have not a wish. I would not live a moment except for the glory of God. That's convicting. Not a single thought that wasn't for the glory of God. And most people would be like, yeah, good luck. Good luck with that, Alan. Obviously, you can't do that. And he says, you say it once. What Christian can ever attain that? Do not ask the question, but ask instead, has Christ attained it? And does Christ promise to live in me? And if you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he most certainly will show himself in your life. He most certainly will dominate your thoughts and you can't help but fall in love with him. 